Turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 3 today. We have quite a lot of ground to cover, so I'm aware of the need to, to do that quickly on Father's Day before we get to the annual Father's Day nap. So we don't want that to happen during the sermon, hopefully after the sermon this morning. As you know, or many of you know, if you're visiting with us today, you come in the midst of a series on the gospel, a series in which we're looking at what is the message of the gospel, what are the the key points of the gospel, what are the things that we need to know and remember, what's the importance of the gospel. And we talked about the gospel is summarized in four key words, and if you remember these four key words, it takes you through the essential message of the gospel. It doesn't mine all the depths of it, all the beauty of it, but it does take you through the the key points of it and those four words are on the screen there God man Jesus and response last week we we looked at God and who he is today we look at man next week we'll turn to Jesus and we'll finish out with looking at what is our response to the gospel message now last week when we consider God we consider the fact that he is the holy Lord of all creation he is the holy God who is eternally existent, who created all things, who stands as a just and righteous judge over all things, that he is the one who can judge because he is Lord, and he must judge because he's holy. And sin cannot be in his sight, in his presence. And so we looked at that last week, and we considered who he is, that God acts according to his character. He acts out of who he is. And today, as we, as we come to man, kind of the, the key point that we want to get across when we think about the doctrine of man is that, that man is sinful by nature and by choice. He is a sinner by nature and by choice, and therefore is in need of salvation. We're in need of salvation to be reconciled to God. And we think about man, I was thinking this week about just the doctrine of man, about our characteristics, and I was reminded that we, we tend to be situational glory hogs. We, we tend to like to receive glory when things are going well, when, when we do things well, right? We want to kind of pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, hey, look at me. We see this in sports all the time. Somebody hits a big shot and somebody wins the game. They come back down, hey, you know, and doing the three-point sign and all this, everybody's pumped up and they're, look at me, look at me. Well, the same guy who misses the shot or makes an error or calls timeout so that North Carolina can win the national championship, then that guy, he's not going, hey, look at me, look at me, right? You don't want to talk about it. Well, we, we tend to be the same way. When we think about the doctrine of man and sin, who man is, today we're going to look at the fact and we're going to begin, if you want to kind of turn back to Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2 and and look at some key points there, some things that we like to think about, some things that we like to talk about, about who we are, who we were created to be. That's the good news, the good stuff about man. And then we're going to think about some stuff that we don't want to talk about, some things that we don't want to think about, that we'd rather not be pointed out to us when we think about what we've done. So I want to just trace who we are really quickly this morning. We don't have a, enough time to go through this in depth, but I want you just to trace along with me about what we learn about man in Genesis 1 and 2, how we were created. 
The, the first thing that you're going to see in Genesis 1, if you look in verse 26 and 27, is that man is created in the image of God. We read where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we learn there is that every person, regardless of age, regardless of ability or capability, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of success or failure, has intrinsic worth and value. It doesn't matter what point of life you're at, every person has intrinsic value because every person is made in the image of God, the imago Dei. The second thing we see, if you just advance on to verse 28, is we see that man was created to procreate. Verse 28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. We were created to multiply. We were created to bring about flourishing on the earth in verse 28. If you continue in verse 28, we continue to read that not only are we to procreate, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, but we're also to subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is repeating what he said in verse 26. This is known as the cultural mandate, that we are created to have dominion over the rest of creation, that we're created to cultivate it, to bring about the flourishing of God's creation, to care for his creation. We're created to be stewards of his creation. We are to have a positive, a beneficial impact upon the created order. If you flip over to chapter 2, Chapter 2 and verse 15, we read that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And we understand here that, that God puts man in the garden to work prior to the fall. And so contrary to popular belief, work is not a result of the fall. Work is not punishment. Work is not evil. Work is good. It is something that we are created to do. It should bring glory to God. It should exalt Him. It should bring pleasure to us. We are created to work. And then in verse 24 and 25, we read that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I read this text yesterday at a, a wedding that I performed in Tennessee and it shared with the, those gathered there for that wedding that this is the foundation of marriage. This is the moment when God instituted marriage. So when I perform a marriage, I don't typically say by the authority invested in me by the state of wherever I'm at. The authority that we have to perform marriage comes from God because it is an institution of God, created by God, to be between one man and one woman in an enduring covenant relationship. This is what we see about man in creation. Many of these theologians would term as creation mandates, the instructions, the commands that God has put forth in creation to rule and help the created order function in a proper way. 
And so what we understand, what we see, the, the good news, the, the part that we want to hear, that we want to think about, and we want to revel in is the fact that we are created in God's image. We have value, we have purpose, we have meaning, right? We all have that, male, female, everyone. We all have meaning and purpose. We're created to have fellowship with God. We're created to work and, and to have dominion over all things in the created order. God has put us in that place. We're created to enjoy marriage. We're created to have children and to flourish. Oh, but now comes that sinister music, right? If we're shooting a, a movie score, that ominous music comes in at this point. Because Genesis 3 lies next. I want us just to walk through Genesis 3 for a few moments this morning. We are going to read the entire chapter, and so I hope you'll just kind of read along in your, in your Bible, and we'll read and just kind of comment as we go through it. Genesis 3 is a very important chapter when we think about man in the story of the gospel. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tr fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now I want us to stop there just for a moment. I want you to look back up to, to verse 1. A, a few things that need to be pointed out. One is that we see that, that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan was created. He is not eternal. That's important because we don't live in existence where there's this equal force of evil and good. It's not this dualism that goes on where, where God and Satan are in this cosmic battle as equal foes and we just hope one of them will win out. No, Satan is a created being that rebelled against God. And we see there in verse 1 where he says, he says to the woman, did God actually say? We see there immediately that Satan is the, gr the great twister of truth and tempter of sin. It's in the a doctrine of looking at evil and Satan, but we just need to point that out. The, the same thing I'd want you to draw your attention to is in verse 3. When, when, he said, when, when Eve responds to him and answers, she says, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve knew the command of the Lord. She was not ignorant of what God had told. She knew the command of the Lord. And we see here the consequence. What is the consequence of disobeying that command? What does it say? Lest you can talk, lest you die, right? Death is the consequence of disobeying that sin. Now, when we get down to verse 6, what, what happens here? The, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. 
It was a delight to the eyes. It was desired to make one wise. And so those things were greater in her view than the desire to obey and to glorify the Lord. And so she ate of it. Now, one final thing we'd point out here in verse 6 is she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, this is Father's Day. This isn't really the point of the sermon, but I guess at this point men can go, yeah, that's right. Eve gave it to her husband. It was her fault, right? I was just standing there. It says who, he was with her. Adam, who was with her? And he ate. So certainly it's Eve's fault, right? Well, we're going to see in a moment. That's not exactly accurate. In verse 8. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent, he deceived me. And I ate. Now, in verse 6 we talked about we say, you know, at that moment, you're thinking, hey, it was Eve's fault. It was Eve's fault. She gave the fruit to her husband. But though, that phrase, that comment there, that Adam was with her, he was with her, and he ate, is important. Because we come down to verse 9, and who does God call to? God calls the man to account. Why? Because the man was intended to lead. And instead of leading, he was just there. And evidently, he watches it unfold, and he goes along. He does not step into the role that God has created him to fulfill. And so when it comes time for reckoning, God looks at the man and says, what's going on? The man is held accountable. Now, we see here the, the instant effects of sin in verse 8. What happens? They, they hear God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and what do they do? They hide themselves. Why do they hide themselves? Because they have shame. They're ashamed of what they've done. Now, this is in contrast to, to chapter 2, verse 25. In 2, verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now, all of a sudden, when sin comes in and they hear God, they hide themselves. Why? Because there's shame. There's shame that's come in because of sin. Sin brings shame. But, but, this is important. In verse 9, but the Lord called to the man. He calls to the man. Eve, or even in the midst of man's sin and rebellion, even in the midst of knowing what God has done, God pursues and speaks and calls to man. He still pursues the man. This is the beauty of the revelation of the gospel. This is the beauty that God calls, God speaks. He reveals himself to man in his sinfulness that he might know him and might be reconciled to him the next result of sin we see is in verse 10 where 
Adam says, I, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Sin brings fear. Why? He was naked. I hid myself. I was afraid. I was fearful. Verse 12, we see the next effect of sin. The, the man and the woman both do what? They blame shift. They point the finger. Right? God, God talks to them. He says, what in the world? Have you eaten of the fruit that I commanded you not to eat? And the man goes, hey, it was her fault. And Eve's like, uh, it was the servant's fault. Right? And it's just like anybody but me, right? This is the, the situational glory hog thing. Right before, it's like, hey, look at us, yeah, but now all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, no, it wasn't me, it was him. No, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't her, it was, it, you know, it's just pointing, 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 pointing the fingers. We continue to do that. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we see immediately right here, again, you remember I said that we don't exist in a state of this cosmic dualism where, where God and Satan are in this epic battle and we're hoping that God will win. No, God has authority over Satan. He has dominion over him. This is not dualism. God and God alone is supreme satan will be punished he will be punished and as a matter of fact you can write down in your notes revelation 20 10 in revelation 20 verse 10 we read that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever satan is not standing in hell waiting for those who don't know jesus to punish them no, Satan is going to be punished in hell as well because Satan is not ruling. God is ruling and he will be punished. In verse 15, we read that, that God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and, his, and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the, the first glimpse of, of the gospel, the first pronouncement of the gospel, the first pronouncement of good news, the proto-evangelion, proto that it is the first moment that we see hope that in the midst of sin coming into the world, that there is one who will defeat Satan. It's the offspring of the woman. Satan will be defeated. Therefore, we have hope. Verse 16, to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You sh your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We see immediately here that sin's consequence, or the consequence of sin affects the home, the most fundamental relationship that we have. It affects the relationship between the husband and the wife. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. We see here in his speaking to Adam. Again, what does he reprimand him for? Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. He followed instead of led. He should have been a leader. He was not a leader. He failed in his responsibility. 
We see there in the end of verse 17 that what was created as good work is now something that is hard. It becomes laborious. It becomes uh, difficult. It becomes a burden as a result of sin. What was good in God's economy has become challenging. And we see there at the end of verse 19, for you are dust and dust you shall return. Death indeed is the consequence of sin. Romans 6.23, many of you probably know the wages of sin is death. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is significant because we see here that the first account of the shedding of blood comes for the covering of sin. You might remember in Hebrews 9.22 that the writer of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And now we see in the first moment that God uses garments of skins. Animals had to die to clothe them. Verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And here we see in Genesis 3 the final consequence of sin in verse 23. The Lord sent him out from the garden. We learn here that there is a separation between God and man due to sin. It's the same thing that Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2. That your sins have brought separation between you and your God. See there's disastrous results in Genesis 3. That which we are created to be, the, the image of God bearing his image, reflecting his image, has been distorted, twisted, and now suppressed by man. The cultural mandate that we were given to, to have dominion, exercise dominion and stewardship over creation has been abused. So that man now domineers over, abuses creation, he acts selfishly rather than according to what will bring about the flourishing of creation, the betterment of creation. Instead of being good stewards of creation, we often abuse it. Work becomes dreadful burdensome, tedious, something we avoid, something we try to get out of. We revel in being lazy. We do all we can to relax and get away from work instead of doing what God created us to do. Brokenness pervades homes, marriage relationships, relationships between parents and their children. All of this is a result of sin. I want you to note something that is glaringly absent from Genesis 3. Where does God say, here's what you can do to fix it? Where is that at? It's not there. There is nowhere in Genesis 3 where God says, here's how you restore yourself. Here's how you get rid of that sin. Nowhere in Genesis 3 do we see that. Because it's not possible. Just like a broken car doesn't just 
fix itself, but it needs a mechanic to come in and to fix it. We cannot fix ourselves. We need our maker to fix it. The Old Testament just develops this truth that there's nothing that man can do to save himself. It develops this truth that man is sinful and he acts in sinful ways, that that God's created order of Genesis 1 and 2 is broken and marred and distorted by sin. So throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of people that rebel against God, that live in their sin. Immediately in Exodus, right after the giving of the Ten Commandments, over in Exodus, that's Exodus 20, we see the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 32, we see the people rebelling and worshiping an idol. The ones who had seen God's great work immediately go and they turn to, excuse me, turn to idolatry. We see in, in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and we're confronted with the reality that we can't follow ten simple commandments. Time and time again in the Old Testament, we see the people of God rejecting him. So much so that they, they reject God in 1 Samuel and they request a king. They reject him as king and request a king. Why? Because they want to be like other nations. They don't want to be like God. They don't want to be how God created them to be. They want to be like other people. We see in the Old Testament, leader after leader abuse power, abuse their responsibility, abuse their status, abuse their position, all for selfish means. We see leaders who should be exemplary show unfaithfulness in marriage. We see brutality and violence between men. We see that religious piety becomes replaced by religious apathy. And we see those who were supposed to care for God's people take advantage of God's people. We see shepherds who are supposed to care for the sheep become wolves who take advantage of the sheep. We see God's word replaced by man's traditions. The Old Testament just tells us story after story after story of the fallenness of man. And it makes the point time and time again that there is nothing that man can do to earn his salvation. Nothing. All because of the result of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, some people would deny this. Some people would argue and say, no, 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 no. Adam's Adam's sin has no effect on me. It doesn't influence me. This is an argument as old as the, as the fourth century when a, a guy named Pelagius taught that, that man was born morally neutral. Morally neutral. He, he, he has a, a clean slate. He has a, a, a free will that can choose to sin or choose not to sin. He did not inherit sin by nature. And so Pelagius comes out teaching this and, and praise the Lord that he raises up Augustine. So that when Pelagius teaches, one of his key teachings is is that we don't inherit sin. Instead, Adam is just a bad example that we imitate. And all of us, I think, if if we're thinking rightly and logically, we just think about that and go, okay, if he's just a bad example that we all imitate, why is it that 100% of men imitate that example? Like, I have some bad traits and some quirky things. Praise the Lord that not all of my kids mimic those bad examples, right? Now, there are some, unfortunately, these guys, sorry, guys, uh, they do mimic some of my bad examples, and I try to go, don't do like me. Do something different there, right? But Adam is not just a bad example. It's not just something that, that man imitates, like Pelagius said. No. Augustine confronted Pelagius, and Augustus stand opposed to him. As did the rest of the church, Pelagius was condemned a heretic. I think it was on three different occasions, if I'm not mistaken. Pelagius was condemned a heretic. Now, why would he be condemned a heretic? Pelagius is condemned a heretic because of what we read in Romans chapter 5. 
Flip over to Romans chapter 5. We'll spend the rest of our time there today. Romans chapter 5. We come to Romans 5. We learn the theological consequences and implications of Genesis 3. Where Paul explains what is right, what is true about the consequences of sin. This opposes all that Plagius taught. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Read 12 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the men re many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I want you to see immediately there in verse 12. Look at verse 12. We see three consequences of the fall. There's three statements that he makes. First, sin came into the world through one man. Then second, death entered through sin. Third, so death spread to all men because all sin. Three consequences of the fall. The first one there, sin came into the world through one man. What this is known as is, is Adam is our federal head. He is our great representative. He is the one who acted on behalf of all men. And so he sinned. Verse 18 and 19 clarifies that more. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam is our federal head. He's our representative. Now, that, that's pointed out in many, many commentaries and scholars and theologians point out that, that a lot of time for our Western ears, that's hard to hear because we are very individual and we don't want to think about one person representing us and his, what he does influencing all the rest. But the reality is, as our federal head, Adam's act brought condemnation and death to us. So the second point, the second consequence is death entered through sin. So came Sin came into the world through one man, death through sin. Death walks through the door that was opened wide by sin. That's what we read, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. We read that in Genesis 3, verse 3. What was the consequence of disobedience? Death. It is a physical and a spiritual 
death. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we understand that, that those who are here today, you're gathered today, and you're, you're an unbeliever, you've not been redeemed, you've not trusted Christ. You may physically be living, but you are spiritually dead in your sins, in your transgressions. And at the end of our lives, we all will face physical death because of sin. Death entered through sin. The third consequence of sin there that we see in verse 12 is that death spread to all men because all sinned. The understanding, the teaching of Scripture is that all men both inherit sin and choose to sin. All men are born sinful, right? They're born sinful and they choose to sin. Why? Because of Adam's sin. That's what we heard Scott read, the passage from Romans 3, 10 to 17. It's the quote of Psalm 14. That there's none who is good. There's none who is righteous. No, not one. None of us. And we get down to Romans 3.23 and Romans 3.23 says, says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One out of one men sin and one out of one men die. It's a consequence of sin. That death spread to all men for all have sinned. This teaching we see in, in verses 12 through 21 is that I've referred to as inherited sin it's the idea that that Adam's sin does not stop with him it is passed on to all men that we're all born sinful we don't sin I'm sorry we're not sinners because we sin we sin because we're sinners does that make sense that the reason that we sin is because our nature is sinful because we have inherited a sin nature. We are born sinful. And so we act according to our nature. Look at, look at these five statements. There's a statement. If you look at 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, there's a statement in each one of those verses that talk about us inheriting our sin. That what Adam did is passed on to us. His, his choice, his rebellion, his sin is passed to us and has consequence to us. So in verse 15, we read that many died through one man's trespass. In verse 16, we read the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. In verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. In verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So contrary to Pelagius and contrary to a lot of popular thought today that is influenced by Pelagius, we are not born with a clean slate. We're not born innocent. We're born with a sin nature. We're born enslaved to sin. We're born bent toward sin, postured towards sin, enslaved to it. That's why we read in, in John 8, 31 to 36, and we think about this whole idea that we're enslaved to sin. It's like, is that really biblical? Yeah, it is. Jesus in John 8 is, is talking with the Pharisees and he, he talks about them being free and enslaved and they say, we're, we're, we're sons of Abraham. We are, we are not enslaved to anyone. And so in John 8, verse 34, Jesus answers them and says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. 
Later in Romans 6, verse 6 to 7, we read this. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, right? We're enslaved to sin. We're in bondage to sin. Romans 6, 16, just down the chapter, he says, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. We're slave. We're enslaved to sin. Pelagius said, oh, no, no, you have this, this free will, this moral neutrality, this clean slate that you live in, that you're born with. The Scripture says, no, that just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That we inherit a sinful nature. Yes, I would agree with Augustine that, that he taught that Adam had the ability to choose to sin or choose not to sin. He had that ability. He had that choice. And we saw that he chose poorly. However, when Adam makes that choice and when he sins, then the soul is in bondage, the will is in bondage to sin. It is enslaved to sin. That's what we see in Scripture. When Jesus is handed the scroll and he reads from Isaiah, one part of that says that he has come to set the captives free. We're in bondage, and Christ comes to set us free. That's why Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, because we are enslaved to sin, inherited sin. That's why David in Psalm 51, when he's writing that beautiful psalm, A Confession of Sin, he makes that statement that in sin did my mother conceive me. Not that her act, of sin, her act was sinful, but the fact that he is born with a sin nature. He was conceived in sin. He was born enslaved to sin. We choose to sin because we act according to our nature. We do not act out of moral neutrality. Most parents would have no problem with that argument. As you see your children, I didn't teach my children to sin. I don't think Steph did either. Actually, I know she didn't. Um, I'll get in trouble if I leave it at that. Children are born with the innate ability to sin. Just like I was and you were because we inherited a sin nature. So where does this leave us? Let me give you four brief implications of what we've read and studied. One, since all are guilty in Adam, as Scripture teaches, all are in need of God's saving grace through Christ. All have sinned. All are deserving of God's wrath. And, wrath, and Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 that great sermon, that's, that's the declaration that there is no other, other name under heaven by which man must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. All men have sinned. All men have rebelled. All men deserve God's wrath. And remember, God can and must judge. Why? Because he is Lord and he is holy and righteous and just. If he does not judge sin, he violates who he is. He can't do that. He can't violate who he is. If he can do that, we don't worship him. But we do worship him because of who he is. 
and he acts out of who he is. So all are guilty in Adam and all are in need of salvation through Christ. The second implication, we must understand our inability to save ourselves. We have to understand our inability to save ourselves. We all stand as sinners before a holy God. Nothing we could do can ever change either of those realities. It can never change the reality that, that we are sinners. There's nothing that I can do that can remove that reality, but there's nothing I can also do that could ever violate or change the reality that God is a holy God. Both of those realities are always going to be true. I'm a sinner and God is holy. I don't have a sin eraser. So it doesn't matter how good I am from this point forward in my life. It doesn't matter if theoretically, and I'll say theoretically in all caps, underlined, italicized, and bolded, if I theoretically could live the rest of my life without sin, it's not as though that then erases all of my rebellion and sin in the past. I don't have a sin eraser. I can't do it. The criminal who commits a grievous crime three years ago and has lived a law-abiding life now, we don't go, oh, well, you've been a law-abiding citizen for three whole years. Let's forget what you did. He's still guilty. He's still a criminal. The third implication, the brokenness, the pain, the suffering we see in the world is no one's fault but our own. It's no one's fault but our own. Do you remember the consequences of sin is blame shifting? You remember that? That Adam goes, uh, she made me do it. And Eve said, well, no, the serpent made me do it. And we talk about this blame shifting game that we play. Well, the ultimate blame shift is what? God. It's God's fault. It's God's fault. All this mess, all this problem is his fault. Obviously, the mess that we have, the evil, the suffering, the, the sin that we see, well, it's God's fault. He's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Or he just doesn't care about it. Or he doesn't exist. And so we just blame God. We look to him and we project our shame on him. When in reality, it's God's kindness, his grace, his patience, his goodness that is shown to us in sustaining life, giving life, and making salvation possible for us. The fourth implication is that we need to ask a question. We need to ask a question of ourselves. Am I sick and I don't know it? Am, am I walking around dead in my trespasses and sin, but I'm walking around ignorant of that as though I'm not? Am I walking around as though I'm fine? Listen, you know the reality that one day we're living and life is fine and the next day we go and we learn the news that we have an illness, perhaps a terminal disease. That reality was true the day before you knew the news. And when you get the news, if you ignore it and go, that's not real, it doesn't change the reality of the illness you have. No, what do you do in that moment? Yeah, you grieve. You feel the pain, the agony, the suffering of the realization of what it is. But then you look to the physicians who would care for you and bring solutions and help you bring healing through medicine and procedure, surgery, whatever it might be. You look to the Lord in prayer and trust and faith. 
You don't neglect the solution. And spiritually, it's very much the same. There's some, perhaps sitting here, you've been walking around as though all is well and all is fine. And you need to come to the realization that all is not well, all is not fine. That you stand guilty of sin. That you stand as what Paul says in Ephesians 2, as a child of wrath, in need of God's grace. And I would beg and I would plead to you today, don't neglect the salvation that has been put forth from God. Don't neglect the good news of the gospel. Don't neglect the message that there is salvation in Christ, that God is indeed the holy Lord of all creation who is holy and just and righteous and who will and must judge sin. And he created man in his image. He created him to have fellowship and communion with him, but man rebelled against him. And there is separation, there is death, there is consequence, there is judgment. And there's nothing that man can do to redeem himself. There's nothing that man can do to reconcile himself back to God, to restore himself back to God. But God knew this. And before the foundation of the world, God's plan was set forth that he would send his own son, Jesus Christ, to come as, as, as a baby, as a child born of a virgin, to live a perfect life. He sinned not. He never sinned. He was tempted, but was with, excuse me, without sin. He was obedient to his father, obedient to the Lord, even to the point of death on the cross. And he came and he died and he suffered on the cross for your sake, for my sake, in our place. He bled and died. He was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave victoriously. And the great call of the gospel is that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but Christ has paid the price. And if you repent of your sins, and you trust Jesus Christ as Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't walk around ignorant of the reality of who you are as a rebel, as a sinner. At the risk of fathers falling asleep, let's look at one more thing. Look at verse 15 through 19 again. Why do we have to think about this topic today? It's, it's not a positive, feel-good topic. It's not a motivational speech that you're going to flip over and go, hey, let's hear a TED talk about how bad we are. It's not what you want to do. It's not going to draw a crowd. To look and say, you are utterly sinful and utterly lost, a rebel, deserving of God's wrath. But reality is not always easy or feel good. But the truth and reality is necessary to know. But, <laughs> but here's the reality. Is that the, the doctrine of sin, of man, that looking at the, the depth of our depravity and our sin magnifies the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It magnifies Christ. Look at verse 14. It says, death reigned 
from Adam to Moses. This is Romans 5.14. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over, the, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He was a type. What does that mean? A type means that Adam was a foreshadowing of the one to come. He was a pattern for the one to come. He is the one who helps us to better understand who? Better understand Christ. I love the new hymn written by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa, Christ the True and Better. You should go home and Google it and listen to it today. But I want you to hear the first verse. They capture this beautifully of what it means for Adam or for Christ. Yeah, Adam to be a type for Christ. The first verse says this, Christ the true and better Adam, son of God and son of man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising crushed the serpent's head. Jesus was the true and better Adam. Adam fell to temptation. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. Adam was the head of fallen man. Jesus is the head of redeemed man. In Adam was failure and disobedience. In Jesus is victory and obedience. In Adam is judgment upon man. In Jesus He is the one who brings justification to man. Adam's sin brought death. Jesus' death brought life. Jesus is the true and better Adam. The good news is that while Adam's trespass brought death, Jesus brought grace from God. You remember how we looked at verse 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, and we looked at five consequences of sin how we inherit sin, we're enslaved to sin. Well, praise the Lord, I hope you noted that I was only reading the first half of every verse. Why? Because Jesus is a true and better Adam. So in the first half, it explains uh, Adam, and the second half explains Jesus. So look at verse 15. You want to know about Jesus being the true and better Adam? In verse 15, we read that because of Jesus, much more has the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus, abounded for many. In verse 16, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. In verse 18, no one, or so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. In verse 19, so by the one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news, that Adam sinned, he rebelled, and we have all experienced that. We've all inherited that sin nature. As a result, we all know the consequence of sin. We all rebel. We all sin. We all choose to sin. We all stand in rebellion to God as objects of his wrath. But Christ has come that we might be saved. Christ has come that we might know him. In Adam, our sin is inherited. In Christ, his righteousness is imputed. It is given to us, placed upon us, not of anything we've done, but all according to what he has done. That's the good news of the gospel, that creation is marred by sin, but it is not marred, distorted, or, or, or changed, or, or impacted in such a way that is beyond God's redemptive power through Christ. Praise the Lord for the work of Christ. The more appalled we are by our sin, the more amazed we are by God's grace. I want to invite our deacons to come forward. Our deacons are going to serve the Lord's Supper this morning as we close out our time of worship.